0: Welcome to the Programmatic Digest Podcast, where we cover top programmatic and digital news. I'm your host, Ellen Parker, your very own Programmatic Sensei. Thank you for joining us. And before we get into today's conversation, please do me those three small favors. Follow us on Apple iTunes and leave us a review. Like and comment on social media. We are currently on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and very soon to be on YouTube, y'all. Yay! And finally, sign up to the newsletter on the website, ProgrammaticDigest.com. It sends you one reminder every new episode or once a month as a recap. In the Sunset's Corner this week, we welcome Nish Desai, Director of Technology and Partnership at Zaxxas. Welcome to the Sunset's Corner, Nish.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: We're pretty excited to have you. Before we get too much into the articles. How about you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background in this amazing, advancing (laughs) industry we both work in?
1: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So like you said, I'm the uh, Director of Technology and Partnerships at Zaxis. And Zaxis is a programmatic media company that focuses on outcomes um, Zaxxas was founded uh, in 2011, and so it's coming up on and on about 10 years old now. Uh, Zaxxas is part of Group M and WPP, um, and I've been in the WPP family since 2007. Uh, when I started at 24-7 Real Media, which was then merged into Zaxxas in 2013. So I've worked on the publisher side. Now I work mostly on the advertiser buy side of the business. And my primary focus is in uh, interweaving different technologies from various partners that we work in the space, such as DSPs, DMPs, other data companies. Um, and merge those into some of our proprietary technology to create holistic technological offerings that we uh, put out in market.
0: Very interesting. I've worked with Daxis as a DSP, of course, where they it was self-managed service. I mean, managed service from on the Daxis side, and um, the customer service, the amount of information given to us, the support of the team was nothing short of. I mean, I had the best experience working with Daxis. So, uh, looking forward to this conversation. Basically,
1: <laughs> that's good to hear.
0: Yes, so as we're recording this episode, I usually pre-record each episode, um, just wanted to make a few comments for our listeners out there. We hope that you are safe and as healthy as possible throughout this whole COVID-19 and coronavirus very, very trying times. And as we tend to be a little bit distracted with what's happening in the media, with the amount of misinformation, today's conversation is actually going to bring us back into a challenge that came up. I'm going to call it challenge and opportunity right now that came up at the beginning of the year when Google announced that third-party data was going by. Bye-bye, like uh, we would say. So Nish, I know you wrote an article a month or so ago that highlighted some of the challenges that we will face as traders, buyers, anybody in the industry, honestly. And also you suggested a really, really interesting solution that I really want you to walk us through. Um, the article is called Why We Need a Browser-Based Identity Standard, and it was published in the Ad Exchanger by your genius self. Okay, so Nish, talk to us a little bit about some of the challenges you think we'll face in the next, I'm going to say, year or so with this announcement of Google, but also before we dig into the solution, talk to us about if any of those challenges have arised already within your Zaxis team.
1: Yeah, definitely. So, as people have probably seen, the way that third-party data is being handled is changing uh, dramatically within the next uh, year or so. With the Google announcement that they're going to end third-party cookie support, it has, you know, really created seismic waves across the industry. Um, primarily when you look at things like uh, DMPs, DSPs, and third-party data providers. And really what, what's key here is, is that those third-party cookies are how each platform uh, maintains identity for themselves. So every user has some ID for that particular platform, um, whether it be Facebook or Google um, or a DSP like Xander or Trade Desk or a DMP which would be something along the lines of um, Salesforce or Oracle Data Cloud, um, where some other platform that's different than the website you're visiting is holding an identifier, and that's generally done in a cookie. Some other ways that that's been done historically has been um, there are some local storage methods that are used out there, um, as well as some device fingerprinting methods that, that are utilized out there. And so what Google's announcement, which is very privacy-focused, does is it ends third-party cookie support within uh, the Chrome browser um, in desktop and mobile. And also, any if the Chrome browser is used inside apps on your mobile device, it won't be available there either. Um, and what this does is, so third-party uh, platforms are no longer able to properly identify those users across sites. So... Whereas things like frequency capping uh, would be controlled across sites using that, that identifier, or if you were importing third-party data from one platform to another, um, it would be matched against those identifiers. There's definitely been some abuse of these identifiers, and as uh, we go into a more and more privacy-focused mindset, um and we see more privacy regulation, this is Google's way to get in front of this um, to enhance user privacy. Apple has done something similar for a long while now, actually, probably about over 10 years, where third-party cookies in Safari um, were handled differently in terms of how they were maintained and uh, how long they, they were stored for. And so Safari has always been kind of an outlier because we didn't have that same Third party cookie support with ITP in Safari that's gotten a little more extreme, um, with ETP in Firefox, that's also introduced a new level of tracking prevention, things like that in Firefox. And now Chrome, uh, which has the most market share in the US, and I believe across the world as well, mm-hmm. blocking third-party cookies. You know, this kind of heralds the death of a third-party cookie across the board. What that really means is, is that vendors who have been dependent upon these IDs to maintain audience profiles, um, to do things like frequency capping, or to do recency things along those lines. This also impacts things like conversion tracking, um, and media mix modeling analytics that happen outside of real time, because those identifiers are no longer going to exist. Any of the things that were historically done based on those identifiers Mm -hmm. um, are either not possible anymore or or, are going to be uh, more and more challenging as we go on.
0: And um, when you say those vendors that have been tracking those IDs or cookie IDs before, you're specifically referring to publishers, ad exchanges and DMPs by right, data management platforms at this point or data providers, correct?
1: Uh, it includes DSPs um, and ad servers as well. Right. So when you're using an ad server um, you know, if you were historically using something like Seismic um, or if you're using doubleclick for for your advertiser ad server, those are are generally using third party IDs as well.
0: So you pointed out how important those cookie IDs were to our solution. You know, my background is 100% on the buy side. Um, so I know it will affect the way I plan, the way I strategize for clients and with a client and I believe it will also affect the activation side of piece and the reporting side of, of that. So you define something called browser-based ID solution. What is that exactly?
1: Uh, so this would be similar if you think about how device IDs operate today. So on your mobile device, anytime you're using an application, there is an identifier that's sent along. So if you're using an Android phone, the ADID If you're on a iOS device, um, it's going to be the IDFA. Mm -hmm. And these are identifiers that were created by Google and Apple, depending on which platform you're on, um, Mm -hmm. explicitly for advertising, right? So whenever you open up an app, if you see an ad there, or if there's an SDK that's doing attribution or retargeting, um, things like that, it's using that identifier as the common ID that's being used there. The other thing to note there is, is that that same identifier is being used across all apps and all vendors. So regardless of who, um, whereas in, in the browser, we have every vendor has their own ID. In mobile applications, everyone uses the same ID across across the board. Um, so in a browser-based ID solution, you would have something similar uh, that was generated either by the browser or by the operating system um, that all vendors' platforms in the space could use to identify users. The benefit of a common ID is that when when a user opts out or chooses to reset that identifier, It will be either opted out across um, all platforms, all vendors, or, you know, it'll be reset across all of those platforms or vendors at the same time.
0: So instead of all of the data providers, data vendors, ad exchange, DSPs, DMPs, you name it, instead of each of them having a particular ID tracker for their users, now you're basically recommending that the browser take on that responsibility of assigning that tracker ID number or the ID number for their users. That would mean the browsers will have to, again, take the responsibility to doing that, but also to allow us buyers and marketers to get that data back, which is something Safari has not been very, I mean, Mozilla and Safari has not in the last, what, couple years now, if I remember correctly. Am I understanding the ID, the browser-based ID solution, or how like realistic do you think some of those browsers will be willing to to do that? Because I think it's great. I mean, somebody needs to figure it out. Yeah, because <laughs> we're absolutely. just trying to live our best life and do our, our work for our client and the brand. So, what do you yeah. think? Like, how realistic is that?
1: Uh, I mean, it depends, right? So, right. In order for it to really work, you're going to have to get all browsers to into this, and uh, the likelihood of that is somewhat questionable. Um, With Google's announcement that they're ending third-party cookie support, they have published support for some APIs that they're looking to deliver that will allow some attribution um, reporting to happen. You'll get some data back that'll be controlled by uh, what the browser is is going to, to allow you to send. Um, And Apple is also looking to create a a similar API that will give similar functionality inside Safari. You know, in terms of the browser makers being willing to make changes in light of the end of the third party cookie, you know, they're definitely on board to make changes as to what changes they're willing to make. That's where it gets a little, little murky. So when we talk about cookies, though, right, I think there's one key thing to, to look at is that cookies were originally created in the late, mid to late 90s, um, really as a way for users as they were going through, uh, like shopping carts on e-commerce sites and things like that so that they could somewhat preserve state. And they were really meant to be in an anonymous way to store data. And so what we kind of co-opted cookies into doing is definitely not what they were originally meant to do and, and a lot of the privacy privacy notions that we have today weren't really concerns back then, right? So we're using super antiquated technology to maintain identity as it stands right now. Is the end of the third party cookie bad for the industry? Yes, because it's going to cause, you know, us to change. Google has given us plenty of lead time. So it's not going to be painful change. You know, the change may still be painful, but it's not that, you know, we have to make changes overnight. And they've been very public about what they're doing and how they're trying to do it. So, you know, I think regardless of whether it's the browser-based identifier or something else, you know, I think, you know, change is coming. I think, you know, we all need to somewhat change to make the overall ecosystem a little better here in terms of how users interact with it. Um, so I don't think, you know, it's necessarily super bad that it's happening, but it's definitely going to cause some, some real work to, to get through it.
0: And I appreciate you saying that because I do think that there's optimistic, uh, there's an optimistic vision here for the industry. And we, cookies ID, cookies targeting, cookie-based targeting got out of hand. In my personal and professional opinion, it really got out of hand in the last three years with everything that's happening. And then we saw we were kind of, I'm not going to say slap in the face, but almost slap in the face with the privacy regulations and now CPPA and and GDPR in the European market, of course. So I am looking forward to how the rest of the industry is going to adapt, which is something we do really well. But we tend to adapt reactively versus adapt (laughs) proactively. And here Google is forcing us to do it in the next two years. So. Has this shift really affected the way your your teams have strategized have um looked into new partnership with some of those publishers because some of the guests that I had on the the podcast have mentioned how okay, now we're not only seeing cookie based targeting as the only tactic. Um, now is pushing us to look at contextual, is pushing us to revisit some of the SBO and supply partnerships that we already have implemented. It's also going to, I think, arm the publisher side to come up with another system for us to track better on their side, but also for them to price better. Um, I think there's going to be an increase in direct deals with some of the publishers, again, in my my professional opinion. So how is Axis taking this in-house and how are we preparing our teams, how we're we preparing our not only the activation team, the planning team or the sales team, but also the tech team on the side that is actually putting this, those partnership into place.
1: Uh, Yeah, absolutely. So there in the immediate sense, right, because the changes haven't happened, right, there hasn't been a huge change in how we operate or how we buy different segments of media in the immediate sense, right. So Mm -hmm. um, business is more or less as usual from a trading operation standpoint, from a technology partnership standpoint. Yeah, we've definitely been, been looking at partners that are providing solutions that are not cookie based. We at Group M we we have kind of a, a firm stance against fingerprinting because there are some questions about how that works yeah. in terms of opt out and things like that. Yeah. Um, so we try to avoid any partnerships that are that, that are doing fingerprinting in a either a non-transparent way or without an opt out. And so we're we're looking at partnerships like that. Um, we're we're digging in deep into into technology that is providing either. There are some options that are using local storage and that are still allowing for for opt-out that way. And there's some other vendors that are coming into this space that are doing some similar things as well that are interesting. Um, we're really in the early phases of those conversations um, and digging into the technology. But I think as this announcement has come, a lot of kind of point solutions that may have existed before that were you know either being used in you know maybe in MarTech or in FinTech. Um, that are now being expanded into ad tech as well. Um, so we're seeing things like that where people that weren't previously in the advertising technology space are moving in to try to solve some of these problems. Um, the mm-hmm. IAB also has a, a yeah. solution working group out there as well. So you know, there's definitely a lot of work being done into trying to figure out the best way to move forward. But yeah, we're definitely in the very, very early stages of that.
0: Yeah, I agree. DigiTrust announced that they were going to shift their focus on versus another type of unified ID solution because they had yeah. already worked on some of that. Um there are a couple more as well. I think W3C has another group. I just want to make a like this request that all three of those giants communicate <laughs> yeah. and that somewhat one of so one solution comes out of this that we can all universally used, but it's, like we said, it's not realistic. I mean, I think the browser-based ID solution is so, I mean, I, I just want somebody to just do it now so that we can figure it out and yeah. use the next year or so to test it out to see and then optimize based on that. But, um, yeah, we, we've seen it in the past where some solution has come out and only a selective group have have um, adopted.
1: Yeah, and I think that, that would be the worst case scenario where right. we get either multiple standards that leave us in a fractured space or, you know, get conflicting Mm. standards that are going to be even harder to deal with as we, you know, go with browser fragmentation and things like that as well. Um, Right. Yeah. And then as as you were mentioning before, the other things that we're kind of shifting into outside of of audience is looking at, you know, working with publishers. Uh, What's key to remember here is first party cookies are staying more or less the same. Um. So yeah. any information that publishers have built themselves that's in their domain, they still have access to that and they can still store it. So I think you'll see a lot more work with either private marketplace deals where you're breaking out specific content types from uh, different publishers, and then also things like contextual targeting. Um, so there's companies like RapeShot um, that does some of that, and there's some other vendors out in the space that are doing contextual classification, we're seeing some success in areas like that as well. Yeah, Um, yeah. Also other signals in terms of geography and things that we've had for years, but haven't really um, utilized, right? So we're looking at like time of day signals, we're looking at using signals from things like weather or publicly available data from the census um, to do some of this stuff as well.
0: Yeah, I I agree with all of the above. I think it's like we're saying, I think it's just going to push us as an industry to come up with more than one here and to look back at some of those previously established tactics that have not been as popular because of cookie-based targeting. But now we're, you mentioned GrapeShot, but I know that, for instance, I know I've mentioned it before on the podcast too, like the Washington Post is coming up with their own mini contextual on steroids, like I like to define it. Double Verify is also doing something um, similar, which is also a contextual and brain safety Yes, contextual and brand safety partners. So, yeah, this yep. is going to be very interesting. And I'm sure we we can talk about, we're going to continue talking about this <laughs> this topic this year and next.
1: Yeah, I think we're going to be talking about it for a long time. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Let's move on, on to our next segment then, where we like to shine a light on diversity and inclusion in our industry and what it represents for you do you have any good or bad example to share with us about a brand, an ad, a message, a company that's doing doing diversity and inclusion right or wrong?
1: I can talk a little bit about what we're doing at, at group and WPP because I think we're, nice. we're kind of leading in this area from like the agency standpoint. So at Zaxxas in particular, we have a couple of groups um, that aim to uh, highlight diversity or to empower women to be more to take a a larger leadership role in the workplace. Um, So we have at Zaxos, the female-led organization is called X Women. um, And then we have an organization that promotes diversity called X Unity. And what we, prior to our coronavirus lock-in, what we used to do is we'd have at least a monthly, sometimes more like bi-weekly event that would focus either a leader in either advertising or the community in general. Um, That was either a, uh, a prominent female or a prominent person of color to tell their stories and encourage others to get involved. Um, we also do this at the Group M and WPP level to really highlight the contributions of the various uh, members of our community, of our workforce that make us what we are, and to encourage the different points of view that people bring to the workforce.
0: That's a really cool example. Thank you. But as soon as you said X women I uh, automatically had a picture of the X-Men, the the, <laughs> the Marvel. I don't know if you're Marvel, DC or any of us out there, but you said X women and I picture Storm and Dark Phoenix and all of the, <laughs> all of those Marvel superheroes. So that's a really cool uh, example. So thank you for sharing.
1: Yep. No problem.
0: And so in closing, do you mind sharing two fun facts about yourself?
1: Uh, sure. So so on the DC or Marvel <laughs> debate, Okay. I am definitely a, a hardcore Marvel fan. I have been for a very long time. I've seen from like the MCU, from like the live action stuff, I've seen all of it multiple, multiple times and I'm like a right, huge right. fan. Um, have been for years, right? So uh, when I was very, very little, I used to convince my parents to take me to the comic book store to waste my allowance, as they would say. Uh, and my parents like right to this day I still have a huge collection um sitting at my no parents' way. House. That's uh, so cool. Right. Like the way I, I, you know, with my parents, uh my parents are Indian. Uh, uh-huh. and so they were always in favor of books, but they right. didn't quite <laughs> get the comic books But that was a way that I was kind of a way to get away with it and say, you know, it wasn't really a toy because it was a book and there was still some some learning going on there. I don't know if they really bought it, but they let me get away with it. (laughs)
0: That's so funny. My husband is also a big Marvel and DC fan. I think he said he read um, almost all of the comics books and he had some. I don't think he has the whole... um publications uh but he's definitely a big fan and um i've always had like a superhero fan but i feel like my knowledge has tripled since being with him (laughs) about superheroes (laughs) and now we actually debate about who's the strongest marvel so in european who do you think is the strongest marvel
1: uh i definitely like i'm a captain america guy there right i think there's some other arguments that could be made but like in terms of physical strength who could who could beat most of the other villains or other heroes in the in the space. I definitely think Captain America.
0: So you wouldn't think Thor or no. Captain Marvel?
1: No, no, no. I think, right, <laughs> so there, so there's uh... like one of the, the forgotten lines from Captain Captain America um is that the the super soldier serum like unlocks the potential of a person, right? So if you You know, Captain America, Steve Rogers has like unlimited potential. And so like unlimited strength can rise to the occasion. Mm
0: -hmm, mm Okay, okay. well, I think we can just move on to the next question because I have many opinions (laughs) as well. (laughs) And just so the non-Marvel guys, uh, listeners out there, thank you for bearing with us in the last two minutes. But this is a very serious conversation when it comes to being a fan. And um, I know he said, my husband also mentioned that we only know so much about the Marvel heroes. There's so many more out there that are much more powerful. So yeah, so let's move on to the next question here where I just want to, we just want to know, what was the latest book you've read or like a latest Audible um, you've listened to or the next one on the list?
1: Uh so I'm also a huge Star Wars fan. So I've been oh, reading nice. the new Thrawn trilogy, which okay. I really enjoyed. I just finished the third one in the series. Um I highly recommend it if you're a Star Wars fan. Um in terms of more non like fantasy stuff, uh my sister is a really big advocate of the five love languages, and I guess there's a there's a book, and so
0: Yeah, um, Gary Chapman.
1: Yeah, that's what I'm currently reading because she wouldn't stop hassling me about it. So that's my current <laughs> nonfiction book that I'm reading.
0: That is so interesting. Yeah, I did read uh, The Five Love Languages and I, I am a strong believer of that as well. I'm not a big fictional reader because I like to watch it. Um, but but yeah, thank you so much for sharing. And lastly, before we part ways here, do you have some quick advice for any freshman programmatic ninjas starting the industry or what would you tell your younger self? Uh, when I say younger, is more like when you first started in the industry, what would you have told yourself to maybe pay attention to or to implement right away now that you have that experience and background?
1: I would definitely, if I could go back and talk to my younger self or, or tell someone in the industry just starting out, um, don't be afraid to ask questions and ask more questions. You know, a lot of times um, when you're a young person in the room and, you know, there's people in there that, you know, have senior titles or have years of experience on you It can be a little daunting to ask what you might perceive to be a stupid question, you know, so you may not ask it or you may, um, you know, wait to ask it later. Uh, what I found to be, be helpful as I progressed through my career is that like oftentimes if you have that question, others have it as well. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, it is a stupid question and, you know, it may not be the best to ask, but, you know, if you have that question, it's highly likely that other people do as well sometimes those questions have have spurred really good discussions about, you know, why are you doing it this way instead of this way? Or have you thought about this? Or why isn't this an option, you know, leads to roads that ultimately lead to a better solution, you know? So ask as many questions as you, you can and learn as much as you can, you know, and ask questions about things that don't really relate to your direct job function, right? If you work in trading, maybe ask some questions about analytics. If you, Uh, work in operations, maybe ask questions about trading or ask questions about where data is coming from or how it's being used. That is
0: such a great advice. And most of our guests on the show have have had that same similar advice, but it only shows us how important it is to get involved and to be curious, right? We need to ask the right question, but even if you're not sure if it's the right question, you still have to ask it. Or like you said, just make an effort, reach out to somebody on the side, find a mentor. That is so important. And that's exactly what I would have told my younger self too in the industry. Thank you again so, so much for joining us. We had a lot of fun and we've definitely learned a lot. Looking forward for the solution to get into the ears of IAB, Digital Trust and all all of the above giants so that it can be implemented very
1: soon. (laughs) Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been fun.
0: Thank you so much for joining the conversation and we hope you enjoyed it. Please do us three small favors. Follow us on Apple iTunes and leave us a review like and comment on all social media sign up to our newsletter on the website programmaticdigest.com which sends you one reminder every new episode or once a month as a recap for any articles topics and the guest information you can find it in the show notes on our website programmaticdigest.com thank you and stay curious my friend